Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Thanks for talking about that. We're going to switch gears to mental performance and mental health services. You recently published a paper on mental health services. I guess, start, uh, what inspired you to want to talk about this topic? Yeah, so this... Uh, I would say it would, it's a passion project just because I started on it in my first year, my PhD. Basically, a lot of my advisor's research was looking into the perceptions of sports psychology at various levels, uh, mostly within the NCAA, but from perspectives of athletes, coaches, administrators. And it was really trying to understand why are people using these types of services? Why are they not? Who is working in these spaces? What's the general historical progression of sports psychology in, in general and in the collegiate athletic space? And so through all of that reading and research, at the end of it, and not that I read everything, but after 20, 25, 30, 40 papers, I'm like, I'm confused. Like, I don't even know who they're talking about in half of these. And so in that sort of progression and learning, I just felt it was important. And we're seeing that a lot within our own kind of community to really define who is working in this space. What are the capabilities? What are the training required? What are the skills? Like all this information. So we can just really have a better understanding of who's doing it and if we know that then we can say hey this area is light we need more or maybe there's too much and we need to attack this from a different angle so that part was just looking specifically at the ncaa division one level and looking at what sort of providers were working in that ncaa division one athletic departments and how many uh there were total do you have a ballpark figure of Kind of just looking at, I don't know, say the last like 30 years, like 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, like what the the numbers of or how many programs, like how often they're being used? I think one of the first papers, um, if I'm remembering back in 2001, it was maybe published that around 13 total people were working full time in athletic departments, 13 sports like professionals 2001 2001 wow and i think that's the earliest that i'm remembering um from there it was a slow progression to i'm trying to even remember what i what we found in our paper um but a total of 
99 professionals working what we thought were, but we didn't really define was full-time in athletic departments. And that's of uh, 253 universities. So that's, that's definitely a lot more, but it's still the question of, okay, so what are other universities doing? How are they working? And granted this, what we found is only people listed on the university athletic department's website and under their staff directory. So there could be people who just aren't listed there working in those spaces. But I would, I would assume working full-time as a part of an organization, you'd be listed in the staff directory as working yeah. or work for the organization. That's a significant percentage jump. And I'd imagine the amounts that are working more part-time and yeah, just on the side or just with specific programs is, I mean, from the, from the nineties to now has got to be exponential. So, yeah. And I think that just speaks to a lot of the, uh, more acceptability and understanding of what sports psychology does or is about and people wanting to seek any sort of creative competitive advantage that they can and seeing the mind or the mental space as something that needs to be taken more seriously. So they're looking for help in all those directions. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. In the paper, you talk about how they're mental performance consultants, there's licensed mental health professionals, and then there's licensed sports psychology professionals. So three different kind of careers names that, that are used and, but they're often mm -hmm. put under the same singular umbrella of sports psychology. Why is this problematic? Well, it's problematic for multiple reasons. Number one, the psych anything related to psychology or using the word psychology is protected by the APA. So you don't want to falsely advertise or deem yourself to others. And it, honestly, it sometimes doesn't even matter what you say. It's just how athletes perceive it. So if you're using any sort of psych in your name, then they're going to think that you're relating to the mental health side of the work and if you're not trained or licensed in that then you shouldn't be working in that space so i think that creates some confusion for that end of who can be doing what and also creates confusions of if someone is hiring someone and they're not really sure but let's say some university hears that another university is doing something and they say oh we want something similar and they hire someone who they think is good, but has no credentials or experience or knowledge of that sort of population, then it just gets really muddy. And we've honestly seen that and it's unfortunate for that to occur. So just better education, which is kind of the goal. One of the goals of the paper is just better education around who is working in these spaces, who should be working in these spaces, spaces what they can, what they can't do. And if that's known, then maybe the work can be much better and more clear to everyone. And we can start to create some sort of normalized ideas around what we're really doing. And just, just to clarify, and I, I don't want to, I want to qualify this as saying just because you have a degree doesn't make you good at what you do, but what you're, exactly. what you're describing is anybody from like a high school degree diploma to a PhD. Is that right? Like this is like anybody could fit in that with, with like a, the first one, the, the M what's the first, the mental health MPC, the MPC. Yeah. Mental performance yeah. consultant. Like they so to that, have a diploma, right? I would, 
I would argue against that because at least in, in my realm, uh, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology has set a pretty clear standard on who should be delivering mental performance work. And that uh-huh. is a master's level degree with uh-huh. of supervised experience, mentored and signed off on and passing a certification test. So that is setting a very clear standard of what it takes to do that work. And it's not just some guy who read on the internet or some girl who read on the internet about something and is going to try to do it with the team. Because, I mean, as you know, this type of work is a lot more nuanced than what you can just read. And so it takes time and experience and more specific guidance and education to get there. That doesn't mean that person is not going to be really good at it, but they can be. But at the end, it's can we start to advocate for people who have put the time, energy, effort in, and we trust the, what they're reading versus, I mean, don't even want to get into what's out there today and what we can believe it's on the internet because it's all can be taken anywhere. So that's a very clear standard set by the Association of Applied Sports Psych to say this is who can practice as a mental performance consultant. For the mental health professional, that is, so if you like think about it as a Venn diagram, you have the MPC in one circle, the person strictly doing mental performance work, has the education, has a credential, has a certification, and then you have the person in the mental health space in the other circle of the Venn diagram who's doing work solely in the mental health realm. And maybe they have a master's in social work or a master's in counseling, or even a PhD in, in or society in counseling or clinical psych. But their primary focus over in this circle is just to focus on, on well-being of individuals. Now, if that person, this is a point of contention, but if that person is working with athletes, that doesn't automatically make them a sports psychologist. This is what I would argue against. And and I would say it only would if they had specific training or specific work with the population of athletes of those individuals. Once they do, then I would sort of put them at the convex of those two circles and say, now they're working with athletic populations. Now they understand the client needs. They have specific education around it and likely coming up through their training, they've learned from the side of the mental performance consultant to do the more proactive sort of mental skills teaching and training uh, as well. And so that person would fit right in the middle of those two circles. And which one of these positions is most needed today in NCAA athletics? If you could only afford one. If you could only afford one, then I would say find more money to get another. (laughs) I mean, ultimately what we're seeing at the, at this level is an emphasis on mental health and a mandate by the NCAA for these FBS institutions to have a mental health resource for the student athletes, because there is essentially a crisis or what they would call an epidemic on our hands of student athlete mental health, which is very real. And like there is 100% support needed for these individuals. I would say where that falls short is that one person will never be enough to meet the needs of 300 plus athletes just never going to happen. Like there's always going to be people on that end falling through the cracks. And if that person is doing clinical work 
on the back end of things, who is doing the work on the front end of things to give the people the tools they need. So whenever they encounter any sort of adversity, it's not automatically pitfall. It's not automatically downward spiral. It's okay, I have this tool. I'm going to use it to help me be better. And sure enough, because I handle that, I'm going to be able to handle the next thing. And then I'm going to be able to handle the next thing. And so that's where I would advocate for a team approach of at least one of each, someone who's working on the back end, maybe for the more serious cases, more serious mental health diagnoses, someone who is also there to talk in the mental health space, but someone like an NPC who's out there in the front end on the proactive space, leading those conversations, giving the athletes the tools they already have in their own minds. They just need help organizing them or putting them together to help them. And if that can happen, then I think you're covering the two ends of the spectrum and, and trying to pick up people along the way. And that's really kind of the genesis of our, of our Institute is to on that proactive end, which, which is just not happening, unfortunately, a lot in athletic settings. College that's what I was going to say. I was, gonna, I was just about to say, just if there was a company that would go the extra mile and do this sort of thing, you know, that would, I know. That would, be, uh, <laughs> that would be ideal. Um, and this could have been a whole, topic or probably a whole two hours so maybe the the shorthand version but you said there's an epidemic um in mental health why why is that well that's a question for the ages (laughs) i i mean honestly i think it's just a lot to do with sometimes our own inability to our own lack of experience with adversity that is necessary for us to be resilient. And if we haven't had those opportunities to be resilient or know what it takes to do that, then that's where those minor inconveniences or even major inconveniences can be a real strain on our well-being. I don't know if it's the societal thing, if it's a parental influence thing, if it's a any sort of influence things that how ha- uh, influences about you know, the pandemic, obviously, like our desire to be related and connected was ultimately severed by that. And I think a lot of people are feeling the effects of that and feeling that kind of loss of connectedness. And so now you're trying to thrust individuals back into spaces in which they've maybe tried to or had to learn to be by themselves. And now they're forced to connect or forced to rely upon someone else. And they just haven't had that experience. It's just like life is hard. And I think the easier life gets, I think the harder it actually hits whenever stuff does hit the fan and we're not ready to deal with that. And I just think we we're seeing that more from specifically within sport because of the pressures of sport and whether that's from parents or coaches in the money involved. And sorry, going back to self-determination theory, because you had mentioned connectedness would would the researchers like in psychology consider you know a social media connection or a friendship there would that still fall under that bucket would that still be connectedness or does it need to be more real <laughs> i would yeah i would say it needs to be more real that would be a false connectedness and it tends to start to fit our own narrative and beliefs on how we see the world and that's just kind of how social media is created for us to fall into things that we like or to steer us in a certain direction and and that becomes sort of a normalized 
uh, thing for us. And so that's especially the case whenever we're presented with an opposite viewpoint in which all we've been fed through social media is some sort of other narrative. And that doesn't, that doesn't fit with us in our social connection. And so as an in-group or as sort of a connected piece, we want to protect that. And so we're quick to dismiss or deny or to point out anything that could actually be beneficial to us, but we feel it threatening because it's attacking our social group. It's like the first monkey to, to get up from all fours and start walking. It's like, whoa, what are you doing? Like, let's get rid of this guy because he's, he's up here on two feet. And like, we're just going to stay over here and we're going to beat this guy up because he's different. And I think that's kind of our tendency now today is to, that's literally in our face all the time with our cell phones of like, oh, here's how people are different. Let's not associate, or let's make fun of them or let's feed me the things that I want to see, see that are so part it's of the opposite. Group. It's the opposite of connectedness. Yeah. So you mentioned how many more mental sports coaches there are working with, you know, colleges and athletes. Um, what has, what impact has that had on sports in the last two decades? If they're, if they're doing good work, I think it's had a really good impact. It's really hard to assess. Um, what I would like to see and where I would like to see it happen more is just in the youth space, uh, just because of the pressures, both from parents and money and, kind of collegiate experiences that these kids can have. And you get a lot of people who burn out a lot more quickly just because of the pressure they have to be in those situations. And I think one thing we see within the burnout literature is just kind of the absence of those three conditions that I talked about, competence, autonomy, relatedness, the more likelihood of burnout for those individuals. So I think we're, we're, we're doing a good job in working with where we are and the athletes that we have and enabling them to be their own inner coach. Uh, but always looking for places to get better and getting to the athletes before the stuff hits the fan. So that whenever that stuff does happen, they're better able to manage it. There's just a lot of work to do regardless. When it comes to the, not the mental health side, but more the performance side, what do you see is the most effective way for coaches to, to implement an MPC? Is it, is it having them, you know, on the field or is it doing separate classroom session? You know, what, what's going to most transfer? Really, a really good point. And I'll answer this just with some experience. And so my dissertation, I interviewed mental performance coaches working in professional baseball. And one of the big themes of these individuals was their, their work is most effective when the players perceive the mental skills training to be a part of what they're doing rather than just an addition to. And so what I mean by that is if you're constantly integrating it throughout practice, it's just naturally happening in conversations, it's designed in how practice is designed, that's going to be far better than it's like, hey, this person's going to talk for 20 minutes at the end of practice. By that point, it's like coach doesn't obviously prioritize it enough to include it. It's just at the end of practice where everyone's dog tired. And I, maybe I just want to go home or whatever. And so it's, there's not a priority to it in that setting. And I think the athletes pick up on that. So when it's really integrated and woven into the fabric of the sports setting, that's where I think it has its, the most value. I do think that is one setting in which you can really see that apply. And I, I see it now, even in the work that we're doing, but also in the course we're offering it's the ability to step outside of that sport context, connect with what other athletes are going to, 
and then take whatever's learned there back to the practice setting as it's almost or it's almost its own like mental game practice. So there's there's definitely value in both, but above all, just having sports like or mental skills woven into the fabric of the practice design. And then what can a coach do for, for mental health or mental performance if they don't have a budget or access to these resources? Uh, that's where I just think coach education, self-education is super important. Um, I'd advocate for referencing the Positive Coaching Alliance. They put out some really good work on just better ways to help develop character within your athletes. And there's simple things like we talked about just now of setting up a really good environment for kids or athletes to be intrinsically motivated. And when you can start to, to get them to do their own work in self-discovery, it's going to be a lot better than trying to do it for them. I would say the next really good thing is just to ask questions. And I think maybe that feeds into autonomy a little bit, but definitely connectedness in which they feel like maybe you care about them a little bit more. Maybe you're truly trying to understand their perspective or what they're going through and through that process, maybe you can find the best way to give them feedback. Um, but really, like, there's a lot you can do as a coach just for your own self and education um, to do those things. Good stuff. Well, we have a, a couple closing questions. And you thought our questions were challenging. These are from Dr. Andy Bass. So now you're really in for it. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, good luck. So he says, uh, what do you feel is the most difficult basic psychological need for coaches to satisfy and why? I think it would be autonomy and only from the perspective of the, of the power dynamic of coaches being unwilling to give it up or to seek out because it takes some vulnerability to want mm. to get your player input. And sometimes, especially if coaches are very protective, might not like what their athletes are saying or don't want to hear it just because it might be against them or they might be able to, they might perceive it the wrong way. So I would say that's probably the hardest. I think in a sports setting, you're generally giving them opportunities to be competent and feel connected to what they're doing, especially if they love the sport they're in. Um, but I would say autonomy first, confidence second, relatedness third. Seems like autonomy just shows up everywhere. I mean, you got Dr. Wolf with optimal performance theory. So you have it in Mm -hmm. motor motor skills and then of course in psychology it just feel like anywhere you dive into it's like yeah autonomy is really important so yeah i think that was the right answer <laughs> hopefully <laughs> andy's ha andy's happy uh okay so another one from him what is the zeitgeist of sports psychology mental skills in america if we are trending in the right direction what could be better i think just our our willingness to to learn and listen more than we are quick to provide information or what we think is incredible insight. <clears throat> and I think for me, where I get turned off a lot by what we do is just, uh, it's just social media, people wanting to put out a quote or something they think is really powerful and having that sort of like, look at what I put out impact versus actually doing the work and trying to learn and understand the work. And so like, and then just having that, that mindset where you don't know everything and it's better that way because it's going to keep you to, to the grind and learning to try to understand what is really happening. Never be satisfied with what you know or what you think, you know, 
And if we know or think sports psychology is so important, mm-hmm. um, why is, do you think the perception is still stigmatized? I just say, uh, to me, it comes back to mental health. And that's what a lot of the research points to is when you talk about psychology, people think mental health and they think when they think mental health, they think something's wrong. And there's a fear that if something's wrong, which is a legitimate fear, that if you think something's wrong, that a coach isn't going to play you or you're going to be seen differently. And that's not the case. And a lot of the athletes that I've interviewed and talked to talk about sports psych work, specifically with the more mental health aspect or mental health side of it as like, you can just literally talk about anything and it's okay to just talk about simple minor inconveniences because at least it's an outlet or someone to connect to versus trying to, to go at it alone. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say to that. Well, I have one more serious question. I'm, I'm curious what sort of impact did the trilogy Indiana Jones have on you pursuing your doctorate? <laughs> you know, it's really funny and it, didn't really have any impact, but my one best friend in high school, he told me, he's like, if you ever get your PhD, I'm going to send you a bullwhip and a hat. <laughs> and so sure enough, when I got my PhD, he sent me a bullwhip and a hat. Oh, like, that's I love awesome. it. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's, it was Dr. hard enough to introdu- introduce you as Dr. Jones. Okie um, <laughs> but... dokie, Dr. Jones. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thanks for uh, spending the time for us and going through a, a new and challenging concept of t- self-determination theory. I think there's a lot of um, really useful information there for any, anybody, any coach and any person. And then, and then uh, helping us get a better understanding of this continue, continually growing field of uh, mental performance, mental health services. I think it's a really important discussion for people to be considering as they're making hires and, and, and hopefully more and more people entering this field. So it's a, yeah. A great discussion. So thanks for the time. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on.